0: Thanks for joining us on the Hope Podcast. Hope Community Church exists to love people where they are and help them grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. By pursuing this relationship together, we can change the world. Hey, when you're done listening to this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free app. From there, you can find all of our recent message content. Our app is actually the best place to keep up with everything going on in Hope. If you like what you hear today, we encourage you to share this with your friends or family. Enjoy! How is everyone good
1: school back in session? How many parents are sad? How many parents are happy? All right, hallelujah over there. Yeah, football started. We're getting back into the grind, getting him back to our normal schedule. And we know that as church leaders. And so about this time of year, we try to plan one of the most powerful and intentional sermon series that we do every year. And this year's no different. And so not this week, not next week, we're kicking off a brand new sermon series called King and a Kingdom. And it's going to be phenomenal. It's about how do we live in God's kingdom here on Earth? What does that look like? What does it look like to live in such a different type of kingdom with a different type of king? And uh, we believe this is so important. And it's going to be so important in the life of our church that we're asking you guys at all of our campuses, even online, to commit to attending for all five weeks. It's going to be that important. Some vision is going to be shared, some of the DNA of who we believe God has created us to be. So king in the kingdom, five weeks plan on being here. I'm super excited, but uh, we still have two more weeks in Daniel. And so if you have your Bibles, this is week four. So go ahead and turn to chapter four. And what we're going to see is that this chapter is very, very different than any other chapter in the book of Daniel. In fact, it's very different than any other chapter in the book of the Bible. And what I mean is so far in the book of Daniel, through the first uh, three chapters, it's been like a narrator has been telling us what's going on. It's written in third person. So it's like a narrator is kind of giving us a peek behind the curtains of what's going on in the life of Daniel and his three friends and a king. It's like it's like the movie Princess Bride. You guys ever seen that? Yeah. Remember, it's like the old grandpa kind of reading the story and narrating what's going on. Well, in chapter four, it dramatically shifts and it goes to first person. So now one of the main characters in this book is like looking at the camera, breaking the fourth wall and telling us what happened in his own life. So instead of Princess Bride, it's like uh, it's like Wayne's World. You ever seen Wayne's World? You know what kind of movies I like from these examples. Right. It's where Wayne like I have an extensive collection of hairnets and name tags. I'm too old. All right. Um, <laughs> you can see this in verse one. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures for generation to generation. So this is evil King Nebuchadnezzar, like the villain in this story, telling us his personal testimony. But something has dramatically changed. This is the guy that took over the city of God, Jerusalem, abducted some of the people of God, uh, disrespected and desecrated the temple of God. This is Nebuchadnezzar, who just threw Rakshak and Biny in the fiery furnace, just the last chapter, and he's proclaiming the wonders of the Most High God. So something has shifted in this man's life, and it has. As we keep reading, we're gonna see this is the first-hand account of how King Nebuchadnezzar came into a relationship with the God of the Bible. So this is the personal testimony of how one of the most powerful, one of the most evil, one of the most furthest away from God people in the history of the world came to a saving knowledge and a relationship with the God of the Bible. And before we jump in, I just have to ask, I wonder if there's someone in your life, if you're listening right now, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a a relative. Maybe it's even a, a teacher or a classmate or a spouse or a child. And when you look out this world and you see all the people, you're like, yeah, I'm pretty sure Jesus could save them and them and them. But when it comes to this person, uh, a little beyond hope, it's a little too far. I don't even know if God's grace could reach that far. Right? How, how would someone like me or someone else actually go about bringing them into relationship? with Jesus. And even if Jesus came to you face to face and said, Hey, that person is going to come to know me and I'm going to use you to do that, you'd be like, first off, I don't even know if you're that powerful, Jesus. But how in the world can you use me? How in the world would I even begin a project like that? And if that's you, I want you to keep the name of that person in your head, because this week and this chapter, we're going to see how God uses ordinary, everyday people like me and you to bring the least likely of people into a relationship with themselves. And it's not as complicated or as intimidating of a process or a role as we like to think about it. But maybe you're here and you're listening right now and you're like, Chase, it's not that I have someone that's far from God in my life right now. I am that person. And I never imagined that I'd be sitting and listening to a sermon or watching online. But I don't need tactics of how to bring someone into a relationship with God. I need to be taught how to do that myself. And if that's you, this week is for you as well. Because this week, you're going to get an up close view of what God does in this king's life, something that he wants to do in your life, if you'll let him. In fact, you're going to see the process that every single Christ follower has gone through. And you're going to have an opportunity to decide if that's something that you want to experience by the end of our time together. So I'm excited. Let's keep reading. It says this in verse four, Nebuchadnezzar was at, uh, I Nebuchadnezzar was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. And I saw a dream that made me afraid. Second time. It's the second dream he's had. God is after this man. He's after his heart. It says, I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretations. Now, spoiler alert, we're going to get to the dream in a second. It's not that hard to interpret. It's pretty simple to grasp. Oh, I get the gist of this dream. In fact, when I tell it to you, like everyone in this room or listening is gonna be like, Oh, I could, I could tell you exactly what it means. And if your job is to interpret dreams for a living, this is like a softball of softballs. But the magicians know what's going on, but yet they choose to keep quiet. And what you're going to see, it's not because they lacked insight. It's because they lacked courage. They knew that if they were going to explain the contents of this dream to the king, it meant that they would have to vocalize and say some not so pretty things to the king. They would have to reveal some hard truths. And so they would have rather just stayed in their comfort zone, avoided the issue, not go through any form of confrontation. They just said, we have no idea. Please let us out of here. And they left. But God graciously sends someone who's going to who's going to tell it to him straight. That's Daniel. Verse eight. At last, Daniel came in before me. He who's, who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of, underline this, my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. So before this experience we're about to read right where we're at in the story, Nebuchadnezzar does not view Daniel's God as his God. He respects Daniel's God, but he doesn't, doesn't believe that it's his God. He hasn't bowed his knee to him, which is crazy looking on what he's experienced so far. I mean, Daniel was the only one that could interpret his dream in chapter two because of his God. He saw three guys go into a fire, spend some time in there, come out, not even smelling like smoke because of Daniel's God, but he still doesn't believe. He's impressed by God, but he's not convinced. He's not converted. And there's a difference. And I see this all the time. People that come to religion or come to church or listen to a sermon or a podcast or pick up a Christian book, not because they submit their lives to God, but because they respect him enough that maybe he can help me in this little area, right? They come to a God not as their Lord and Savior, but more as like a life coach, right? Like, I don't want to give you my whole life, but if you can help me with some of my thinking habits or some of my financial habits or this marriage, if you can, you can pull this away from the brink. So God is someone that you respect, someone that, that you might be able to give a little bit of your life to, but it's not, he's not your Lord yet. He's not someone you've given control of your whole life to. And if that's you, hey, that's okay. I've been there. Everyone in this room has been there. We're glad that you're here, but there's a difference. Respecting God, being impressed by God, is not the same as submitting your life to God, which is what we're going to see in the king's life. Well, at this moment, he kind of asks Daniel to interpret his dream, and we won't read all of it. But he basically says, here's what I dreamed. It was crazy. The first thing I saw was this gigantic tree and it was beautiful, full of splendor. It's been 100 feet tall. It was crazy and it had beautiful leaves and its trunk was so big and it stood high above all the other trees and it provided shade and fruit for all the creatures in the forest. But then this angel shows up, Daniel, and this is what he said. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. And let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers or the angels, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. It's a weird dream. This is your first time at church. It's a weird passage. I know that. It's a weird dream, but it's not that hard to interpret, right? There's a big, beautiful, powerful tree that provides protection and nourishment for the whole kingdom. That's Nebuchadnezzar. And the angel says, hey, cut down the tree. So apparently Nebuchadnezzar is going to go from this pedestal that he's way up here and he's going to be brought low to the lowest of lows. And the dream states that he will be like a beast for a period of seven years. What does that mean? We're going to find out. And all of this will happen so that everyone, including the king, knows that the Most High rules The kingdom of men. So the king tells Daniel this dream, and he's like, what you got for me? What do you think, Daniel? And Daniel could have played it safe. He could have said, eh, sounds a lot like you, but you know, I'm gonna stay in my comfort zone. But look at how Daniel reacts. It says, now, Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, or sad, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, hey, Daniel, I don't want to pronounce that name a lot. Let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. And Daniel answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. He's troubled. He's saddened. He's kind of afraid for the king. He's troubled that the enemy of his people and the enemy of his God is about to be judged And brought down by God. Why is he troubled? Because he has compassion for him. Because he loves him. He loves the dude that tried to kill his three friends and him. He loves his enemy like Jesus commanded him. This is unheard of in our culture, isn't it? We try to surround ourselves with people that are just like us and on our side. Won't even share a table with someone that disagrees with us. But here's Daniel. Troubled that the king's about to fall, and he loves him so much. Well, where does this compassion stem from? We might not know this, but the events of chapter 4 actually happened 30 years after the events of chapter 1. So this compassion stems from a relationship that Daniel has formed with the king. For 30 years, he's been a part of the king's inner circle. He's been there day in, day out hearing the king's proclamations, giving him advice as best as he can. And he had to stand there and watch the king make some pretty crazy evil decisions like he was there when the king said, I don't know, let's throw him in the fiery furnace. But Daniel, he did not give up hope that this guy is far from God, but God can change even his heart. And because he stuck with it for 30 whole years, because he he had that connection, he's given this holy opportunity for correction. He's earned the right to speak some hard truths that no one else could have spoken. And out of his compassion, he does speak truth. It says this. This is the interpretation. It's a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord, the King. You shall be driven from among the men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Out of his love and his concern for the king, he just tells it like it is. He gives him the full unadulterated truth. The tree is you. You're what this dream's about. He didn't have to do that. He could have said, you know, it's a complex dream You know, I think there's lots of themes in there. There's humility and there's pride and how nature kind of reflects human beings. And, you know, pride's a bad thing. I struggle with it. You struggle with it. We could all kind of probably be better if we were a little more humble. no, 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 no. He says the dreams about you and your pride and the lie that you believe that you are greater than the God who created you and God's going to humble you until you see that truth out of love. He speaks the truth. Listen, you can do both things at the same time. You can love someone deeply. You can care about them and their future. You can have a relationship with them and still warn them of the dangers of sin and the provision of Jesus Christ. In fact, that's the most loving thing that you can do. If God is real, and sin has separated us from him and hell is our default destination. But Jesus came to make a way for all of us through his life, death and resurrection to escape that and be close to the Father. The most loving thing we can do is to proclaim that from the rooftops. And the most unloving thing we can do is to soften that truth or to take parts out or just to stay silent altogether. Like I have three daughters. How many of you have kids? Imagine if you're walking down the road, I don't know, Highway 1 or something or 55, and you're walking on the sidewalk and your kid juts out in the middle of the road. How are you going to respond? You're not going to say, look at my little parkway princess, you know, like lay down on the double yellow line. Let me get a picture for Facebook. No, you're going to say, get off the road. You're going to get hurt. You're going to get killed. Why? Because you hate her? Because you're judging her? No, because you love her and you want her to be safe. In fact, you'd be willing to sacrifice yourself to run out on that four-lane road and risk danger just to grab her up and bring her to safety. And that's the call that we have as Christ followers, to love people so deeply that we speak honestly, and even to sacrifice, to care less about what people think, to care less about being mocked and being called hateful or judgmental, And to care more about the eternal souls of the people that God has placed in our life. To out of compassion speak truth. And that's what Daniel does. Out of love. But he says more than that actually. He says, hey Neb, you can actually stop this. Verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness. And your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. He says this this is not in the dream, but it's in the Bible that I have over and over again. And this is how the God that you don't serve yet works. You can stop this from even happening. You can stop this. If you repent while the dream's still a dream and not a reality, you can avoid all of this. If you just bow your knee to God, if you humble yourself, guess what? God's not going to have to do it for you. You can stop all this if you repent and bow your knee. You can stop it right now. But the king apparently says, no, 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 I'm good. And can you blame him? He probably said something like, hey, Daniel, I have never followed your God and life's going pretty smooth. I'm the leader of the greatest world power in history. I got wealth and fame and acclaim. So I think I'll just keep doing my life my own way. I think it'll just keep getting better. But it doesn't. Watch what happens. Verse 29. At the end of 12 months, whole year goes by. He's walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon and the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built with my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. So a year later, he's still strutting around God gave him 365 days to humble himself. He chose not to. He doesn't take God seriously. And so God intervenes. Verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it's spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar and he was driven from among men. He ate grass like an ox And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. And I just lost half of you. (laughs) Sure, Chase, sure, that happened, right? I actually researched this, um, and this is a well-known disease. It's actually called Insania zoanthropica, or as our National Institute of Health calls it, clinical zoanthropy. Throw that out, you'll sound smart at dinner, and it still actually happens. It's where people come under the, de- the delusion that they're an animal, a wild animal, different types, and they actually act like that until they snap out of it. In fact, in America, the last known case of this was 2016. I'll give you one guess what state it was in. Florida. Yeah, you're right. Um, <laughs> and it's named after different types of animals, but boanthropy is the delusion that you're an ox, where you act like an ox and eat like an ox and live like an ox, and that's what God struck King Neb with. But still, you're like, okay, there's a clinical definition. But King Nebuchadnezzar was a real historical person. Like he existed outside the Bible. We have records. Do we have records of this happening? Well, in the Babylonian records, we do not, which would make sense because the Babylonians only recorded the best achievements of their kings. They had very detailed records, but they only included their victories in battle, the achievements they had, the monuments that they made. There's not a single loss in battle. Not a single mistake. So we don't see it there. But a Greek historian named Abidinus wrote in 268 B.C., about 300 years later. And he said during his reign, Nebuchadnezzar was possessed by some sort of God and disappeared for a time. It's a historical document we have. And get this, the historical documents that the Babylonians did keep were very, very detailed. Here's what happened this week and the next week and the next week, all the way for the first year of the reign and the second year of his reign. But unlike any of the other kings, there's a curious gap between 582 and 575 BC where there is no detail listed whatsoever. And 582 minus 575 equals what? Seven. Seven years. So historically, in all likelihood, this really did happen. Neb was given the opportunity to humble himself before the God that created him, and he refused. And so God had to humble him. But eventually... Nebuchadnezzar comes to see the truth. It's a beautiful verse. Look at verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. He's looking up to God, not down on him. And as soon as he did that, my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And at the same time, my reason returned. So was the glory of my kingdom and my majesty and my splendor and my counselors and my lords sought me and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me is more powerful than ever before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all of his works are right and all of his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. See, after he's humbled and he comes to the saving knowledge of God, he humbles himself, his reason returns. And not only was his reason returned, but his kingdom was, which means that God's goal was not to humiliate him. That was not his goal. His goal was to show him the error of of his ways, to get him to stop believing the lie that he was the Lord of his life and to bring him to the truth that no, 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 God really was because there's freedom there and there's purpose and there's meaning there. And he does that. And because he's found that truth, that salvation in God, he writes this letter that's recorded in Daniel, Daniel chapter four. He writes this to the whole entire nation of Babylon in hopes that more and more people would come to know the God that he had come to know. And this is the last words that we actually have from Nebuchadnezzar. He fades out of the Bible at this point, point. the next chapter picks up with the next king. Well, what can we learn from this? Well, quickly, it's a weird chapter, huh? but two things. I think first, when it comes to the salvation of our friends, remember that person you thought about might seem a little bit too far away from God, maybe a little bit hopeless when it comes to the process of them coming into relationship with God, we have a role and God has a role. We have a responsibility and God has a responsibility. We have a job and God has a job and we can't mix the two. That's when we get intimidated. That's when we complicate things. Here's our job, write this down. Our job is to speak with compassion and courage the true gospel of Jesus. That's our job. To speak with compassion and courage the true gospel of Jesus, to love someone enough to speak the gospel. And notice I said true gospel, because we have to be careful here. There's a difference between being impressed and being saved, right, of respecting God and bowing our knee to him. The gospel is not, I dealt with a little bit of anxiety, everything else was going great, but Jesus gave me peace and he can give you that. Or I was a little broke and Jesus gave me some money and maybe he can do that for you too where my life was going pretty good, except for my marriage. And Jesus taught us some communication skills through principles in the Bible. Maybe he can do that for you, too. Those are all great things. But the gospel is not. Look at how good humans are. Jesus can make you even better. That's not the gospel. The gospel is no, no. You, me, we're dead in our sins. We're separated from a holy God because of that. And we will one day have to stand before God in judgment. But Jesus came and he lived and he died and he's risen from the grave. And now we can repent and be forgiven and submit our whole life to him and experience transformation. That's the gospel. But see, our role is just to lovingly speak that. That's so simple. It's not as complicated as we usually make it. In fact, I was reading, this is my favorite Bible. Um, It was falling Apart, but and my wife's uncle actually rebound it in leather. And now I love it. I was reading it yesterday morning on the porch, nice and cool. And I was reading in Acts and I saw these two acrostics. And I don't know what pastor said it or what book. I, I didn't come up with them. But they're on this idea of evangelism. And one's the right way to do evangelism and one's the wrong way. I want to give them to you. The first, the right way, it's called SALT. Everyone say SALT. The S stands for start a conversation. That's the first step. Hey, you want to go out to get pizza with some coworkers. You can you sit by me? Hey, you want to grab some coffee at some point? Can I give you a phone call? And that leads to the next one, A, which is ask. You know that I'm a Christ follower. that I go to church and weird stuff like that. I've never asked you, what do you think about God? What do you think about religion? Just open up a discussion. That leads to L, which is listen. You don't fight. You don't debate. You don't judge. You just listen to them tell their story about their experience with spiritual things. And the last one is T, tell. And then you said, that's awesome. Can I tell you about my experience? There was a time in my life where I I didn't know Jesus, and life was rough. And I learned the truth about sin and of grace and of mercy and of Jesus on the cross. And when I put my faith in him and submitted my life to him, everything changed. And I just like you, and I want to tell you that, right? You don't have to respond. You don't have to answer. Isn't that simple? You don't have to take an apologetics class. You don't have to read books or study up to answer every question. Just S-A-L-T. It's the opposite of the bad way, the way we usually do it's called T-A-L-K. It's even a bad acrostic. The T stands for talk, right? So instead of a discussion, we just say, start talking at them. Here's 73 theological points that you need to agree with. And then when that doesn't work, we move on to A, which is argue, right? No, 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 that's dumb that you believe that. That's incredibly wrong. Where did you hear that? When that doesn't work, we move to L, which is louder. And we say the same stuff over and over again at a higher value, a volume. And when that doesn't get through their head, we move on to the last one, which is K, which is quit, right? Q wouldn't work. I didn't write this, right? We just give up. But that's not the way we do it. Our job's just to speak the truth in love, with compassion and with courage. We do our role and we get out of God's way and we let Him do His. And hopefully, what you saw this week is that God is really, really, really good at His part. He has the wisdom and the power and the love and the mercy and the grace to transform absolutely everyone, even King Neb. It took a few years. It was a few years of one step forward and three steps back, two steps forward and seven steps back. But eventually, even King Neb, with all of his power and all of his wealth and all of his pride and all of his sin, even his eyes were open to the truth that God is king and I am not, that he's the ruler and I'm not. He's big and I'm small. That he is glorious and he is true and he is graceful and he is merciful and he is worthy of my praise and my worship and my honor and my very life. And if God can do that with King Neb, he can do that with anyone in your life. You believe that? And your job is just to speak, just to speak the truth. So who is it in your life that's far from God, but close to you? That God might be just setting you up. He sent you into their life so that you could just speak the truth out of love. Would you consider doing that this week? Maybe even today. Would you be willing to be obedient to God to just out of compassion speak truth? Would you be willing to not transform, not convince, not save? That's God's job. But just speak with compassion and courage the truth of Jesus. That's the first thing. Second thing, real quick. Have you humbled yourself before God? Have you made the decision that King Neb could have made, but he refused? Have you bowed your knee to the God of the Bible and given him control over your life? If you're listening right now, hear me and you've not yet made that decision, and you're living life on your own terms, thinking that you don't need God, and life's just going to keep going great. Listen, God loves you too much to leave you there. He cares about you far too much to allow you to live according to that lie that you don't need him. And he's going to use all of his power and all of his wisdom and all of his patience to humble you if you won't humble yourself, to bring you to a place where you see how desperately you need him, even if that means bringing you to a place of discomfort or powerlessness or pain. For Nebuchadnezzar, it was a a humiliating season of disease. For a guy named Saul in the New Testament who persecuted the church, he was struck blind. I've had a season of humility in my life. Probably everyone in this room has. For others, it's It's the loss of a job. It's the inability to pay the bills. It's the DUI that lands you in jail for the first time. It's the marriage that's threatening to break up. It's the kid that says, I don't want anything to do with you. It's waking up when you're 40 or 50 years old and saying, I've wasted it. Listen, those aren't just the natural consequences of sin, although they are. It's also the humbling hand of a loving God who is willing to allow what he hates to accomplish what he loves, your salvation. But see, you can stop that today because God's inviting you to make the decision that Neb didn't, to bow your knee to him so that he can do for you What you could never do for yourself. You can stop all of that from happening and experience the life that you were created for, but it's going to mean that you humble yourself before Him. Humility is the doorway to salvation, is what the Bible says. James chapter 4 says this Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. And this is a decision that every single person on earth has to make. Am I the Lord of my life, or is God? And God's inviting you to make that decision today. And listen, God's so committed to this humility thing. He actually did it himself, which is weird to think about. But God in Jesus humbled himself to show you what it's like. Unlike King Nebuchadnezzar, who refused to humble himself and so God brought down, the Bible says that we have a king that willingly humbled himself so that he could lift you up. Philippians 2 says that Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, the death that I deserved, the death that you deserve. He died in our place, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of that, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And right now that king is asking you, are you willing to do that? He's waiting with open arms, but love nothing more than just welcome you into the kingdom where he's the king and you're not welcome you to a family where he's the father and you're not to provide for you what you think you can provide for yourself and you can't healing, restoration, forgiveness, grace, purpose, salvation. So I want to give you an opportunity to do that. So in this room right now, across all of our campuses across online as well, if you could bow your heads and close your eyes, every head bowed, every eyes closed. If that's you and you've never made that decision, I would make it for you if I could. But I'm going to ask you just to pray something like this. Not out loud. There's nothing magic about this prayer, but the Bible says if we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouth that He's the Lord, that you'll be saved. Let me pray something like this. Jesus, I confess that I'm a sinner. That I haven't given you a second thought for many, many years. And I'm living as if I'm my own Lord and Savior. And it's working out now. But your word tells me it won't work out forever. And so, Father, I ask that you will forgive me through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And not just forgive me, but would you fill me? Would you transform me? And would you provide for me what I could never provide for myself? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's keep our heads bowed and our eyes closed. If you prayed that, would you do something very, very courageous as an act of confessing with your mouth? Would you just raise your hand in this moment across all of our campuses in this room? It's amazing. I made that decision dozens of years ago, best decision I've ever made. Welcome to the family. Father, thank you for your spirit moving and acting in this moment. Jesus, you deserve the glory and the honor and the power and the praise. So thank you for your word. And we pray that you would get glory from our lives in the coming days and weeks. And it's in your name we pray.
0: Amen. Thank you for listening to the Hope Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this message and encourage you to share it with your friends and family. If you live in the greater Raleigh-Durham area in North Carolina, we'd love to meet you at one of our weekend gatherings. For campus locations, service times, and information on our children and student environments, check out GetHope.net. To make sure you don't miss our next message, please take a moment to hit the subscribe button. We would like to invite you to support what we are doing by visiting gethope.net slash give. Through generosity of people like you, Hope can run programs like our food pantry, homework club, project classroom, and many more.